Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling, founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I'm happy to be with you as we draw near the end of 2023 and have hopefully some fun with a couple of final episodes this year before we move into 2024. And again, I invite you to go by the website, marapoling.com and register for the 2024 Outlook. You'll find that at the Learning Center under the webinars section. This week, we're going to talk about income to rent ratios. There's a lot of different factors involved in qualifying a prospective tenant. What's their rental history, credit, uh, other background checks? But income is absolutely part of it. Does this tenant make enough to be qualified to rent this unit? Well, what does that mean? How much should they make? That's what we're going to take a look at. So thanks for joining me. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And as I said, swing by marapolling.com, check out the Learning Center, lots of great content there and register for the upcoming 2024 Outlook. Uh, I encourage you to register, even if you aren't able to attend, you'll receive a copy of the material in advance and you'll have a, a priority access to the recording of the session. Okay, so with that, let's, let's get into this week's topic. So income to rent. Why do you care about that as an investor? Well, it's one of the tools that whoever operates your property, right, from your investment, whether it's you operating it yourself because you own it, or you've hired a property management firm and they're running it, or you're invested passively with a sponsor like Mara Poling, it's one of the tools that the operator of the property uses to manage a number of different factors. It plays into occupancy, it plays into rent growth, it plays into delinquency and bad debt and evictions, and overall the stability of the asset. The income to rent ratio that you will typically hear spoken of in the industry is either two and a half to one or three to one. What does that mean? Let's take a unit that rents for $1,000. If someone is trying to qualify for that unit and they are up against that two and a half to one standard, then they need to make $2,500 every month in order to qualify from an economic standpoint for renting that unit. If the standard is three to one, then they need to make $3,000 a month. Now, when I say they need to make that, in almost every instance, it's really the household, right? So you could have two wage earners, they could be roommates, they uh, could be a married uh, couple or uh, simply a committed couple, but two people that are on the lease together, and then you'd be able to combine those in order to make those numbers work from that standpoint. So let's take a look at those numbers, a little bit of the math 
and get a sense of what it means for a tenant to qualify under either of those standards. So if someone earns $2,500 a month, that's two and a half times the $1,000 rent number. So you want to rent a $1,000 unit, you need to have $2,500 a month of income. That $2,500 a month is $30,000 a year. That's how much income you need to have to be able to make that work. But that's gross income. And this is all done at the gross level. In other words, before any taxes or other expenses are taken into account. I don't know what individual's tax situation might be. They're going to have, I would expect, a standard deduction available to them. They may live in a state like Texas, where we do most of our work, that has no personal income tax. And so their primary tax burden may be the Social Security and Medicare, uh, unemployment tax, those kinds of things that get taken out of their paycheck every two weeks. So let's just assume that that number is 10%. So this really isn't taking into account that there may be some federal tax or state tax that's due. And as I said, at this particular level, that standard deduction is going to offset quite a bit of that. So if we take 10% off of $2,500 a month, we have $2,250 every month, of which $1,000 of that goes to pay rent. That's 44%. So 44 cents of every dollar that that individual or family brings in and takes home every month goes to pay rent. Let's contrast that with the three times standard. At a three times standard, that same $1,000 unit now requires someone to make $3,000 a month. And using that same 10% formula, they have $2,700 left after those payroll taxes. And the $1,000 is 37%. So closer to a third, whereas on the two and a half to one, it's not exactly there, but it's getting close to 50%. So there's clearly a difference from a uh, impact standpoint on those particular uh, tenants. But what does that mean for us? How does that work relative to a strategy? Wouldn't it make sense that we want to have people with higher incomes? Isn't, isn't that just natural? So we should use three to one everywhere. If that was the case, and I'm not saying that that's not a smart way to do it, but if that was the case, then why not three and a half to one or four to one or four and a half or five? If, a, if more is better, isn't a lot more, a lot better. And I'm not sure that that's the case. So let's, let's take a look at it and see what it means to move to those higher numbers and when it might make sense to be three times and when it might, might make sense to be two and a half times. Because I don't think there's one answer. If there was, then I think you'd see that across the industry. I think that answer varies by property and market. And it can also vary based on time and the economy. So if 
you're looking at two and a half to one, you're going to have more people qualify, right? If, if you have a hundred potential applicants and half of them can qualify at two and a half to one, well, you're going to lose some of those. So maybe only 30% qualify at three to one. So you will have fewer people in the pool that you can draw from to rent units that are available in your space. Now, keep in mind that these are income ratios relative to the rental rate for that particular unit, right? So if someone were in a position where it was three to one and they needed to make $3,000 to rent that $1,000 unit, and that $1,000 unit is a two-bedroom, two-bath that has maybe a few upgrades to it, it's completely possible that you could find a $800 unit or a $700 unit at the same property that might be smaller and might be more of a classic in which that individual's $2,500 a month now works because they don't make the 3000 a month that's needed to get that. So tenants could in a three to one situation still bring in $2,500 and make that work for themselves. They simply wouldn't get what they would experience if they were in a situation where it was just the two and a half to one. So on the surface, like I said, it seems like gee, if I go three to one, I have less risk. If I go two and a half to one, I've got more people to, to draw from. Well, that's risk for us, right? We're, that's one way we're thinking about it is what's the risk of a tenant not being able to pay their rent? What's the risk of a tenant uh, becoming delinquent, falling behind, worst case, us having to evict them or they skip out and then we have to go chase to see if we can collect any of those dollars. So that's risk we experience, but it's also risk the tenant experiences. And this is, this is something we try to keep in mind. And I, I think the vast majority of people in the industry actually do think this way. As a sponsor, we have two clients. We serve two distinct marketplaces. One is the marketplace I'm speaking to right now, investors. We serve our clients. And we want to make sure that they have a great experience. And we define that as being an investment that is secure and stable and that generates cash flow and equity growth and takes advantages of the tax code where it can. We also, though, serve another client base, and that's the tenant base. And we want to serve those folks. They're not means to an end. They are customers of ours. They are clients. And we want them to have a positive experience. That We want them to truly make our property their home. And we don't want any tenant signing a lease and then being in a position where they're lying awake at night, constantly worried that they might not be able to pay next month's rent. And so three to one would be good for everybody in that particular situation. But why would you do two and a half to one then if three to one seems like there's less risk involved? Well, 
as I said, there are fewer people that will qualify at three to one than two and a half to one. So if you use two and a half to one, you will have more potential tenants, which reasonably translates into a higher lease up rate. So less physical vacancy, higher physical occupancy. Well, that sounds good. So we would be served by having more units occupied. That would give us greater stability. And when we did have an issue with a tenant, you've got some cushion there to take care of it, right? That could be a logical way to look at it. There's a couple other things to keep in mind. When someone moves in, they're paying the rent for that particular unit that's on that lease. And that's what they're qualifying against. The next year when the renewal occurs, we don't necessarily take someone back through the approval process. That may happen on occasion if someone's had a demonstrated difficulty paying rent, there may be a process that we go through, but generally speaking, we aren't doing that. So if you have someone that qualified at two and a half times, right, on that $1,000, and the next year, because of solid performance in the marketplace, lots of competition uh, for uh, units among tenants, and occupancies are high and rents are moving, that $1,000 could now be $1,100. If that tenant didn't see an increase of $250 a month in their income, right, a 10% raise, if they didn't experience that, then they've actually fallen behind a little bit. And now that $1,100 rent isn't 44% of their $2,500, it's creeping up on 50% and may get above 50%. So a tenant that qualifies at three to one has more room to deal with potential rent growth over time. That means not only are they a potentially better risk today, that also extends into the next few years. That gives us room to be able to move rents. So if I'm buying a property with no value add, I'm buying what I would describe as a, a momentum asset, an asset that I'm just gonna manage, the, the rents will move however the market moves, we're not really doing anything significant other than just managing and operating the property. In that particular instance, then I may not care a great deal from this particular standpoint, about two and a half to one or three to one. If it's a value add property, I'd like people to be more economically qualified. I'd like them to be at that three to one so that as the value add work occurs and we are able to move rents, we don't necessarily have to simply turn over the entire uh, tenant base in order to do that. So that's another piece of logic that fits um, that fits uh, into it is that room to grow. Another factor is, and this ties back to the risk we talked about, but it really ties into the delinquency issue. 
no tenant, and we firmly believe this, no tenant signs a lease knowing or planning on not paying their rent. And yes, I'm sure there's an exception out there. And that exception is what proves the, the rule I just said. And yet tenants fall behind on rent, not because again, they want to do that, but either because of circumstances outside of their control or decisions they may have made personally that simply put them very close, if you will, to the razor's edge. And then they simply tipped over. So if you have a thousand dollars in rent that's due every month, and you had the proverbial $400 surprise event happens, right? Something happens to your, to your car and you've got to spend $400 to get it fixed. Uh, you get ill or something happens to you and you have to go to the emergency room and you end up with a doctor bill that's $400. Well, the analysis of that on a national basis, right? The surveys and studies that have been done say that about a third of families um, are in a position to be able to deal with that and to write a check for, for cash. But two thirds don't have that kind of cash laying around. Now, that doesn't mean two thirds would be suddenly upside down because actually about half of all of those folks are, have said that they would actually use uh, credit to be able to deal with that. They'd use a credit card or they'd borrow the money somewhere in order to be able to do that. But they're borrowing that. That's not cash they've got in their pocket. And now that puts more stress on them economically. But there's a small group. There's 10, 15, 20% that they aren't going to have it right? $400 is going to tip them over the edge. And if a tenant is in one of these two and a half to one kinds of um, relationships, then they get hit with that $400. Well, now I don't have my thousand to pay rent. I can only pay a certain amount. In some instances, we will accept partial payments. Typically, we do not. That has more to do with what the local community jurisdictional requirements are around how an eviction proceeding would work. And it's not our objective or uh, our goal, our objective to evict a tenant when they don't pay their rent. We do need to protect ourselves and the rights we have under our lease. And so if a tenant does not pay their rent, we will begin that process. And that process takes some time. 30 days, 45 days, 60 days, but we will begin that process. Just as I would encourage you, if you are managing your own properties, have a process for how you deal with tenants that pay rent late or that simply are not able to pay at all. And then in working those delinquencies, is someone really in a position where they can get caught back up? The, I mentioned a tipping point one of the tipping points is I have a, I have a lease. I owe a thousand dollars and I can't pay it. I go in, I talk to my landlord and I say, I, I'm going to get caught up. I'm going to figure out how to do it. And maybe this month I do, maybe I, I get some money from, from some family or friends 
maybe I pick up an extra shift somewhere, but I somehow come up with the the several hundred dollars I'm short and I pay my rent in full, including the late fees, which begin to compound the event. But a couple months down the road, the same thing happens again. And this time I don't get caught up. And now the next month comes and you know what? I don't have the money to pay that rent either. Well, now I've gotten a couple of months behind. And if I get a few months behind, think of that. I make $2,500 a month. I bring home about $2,200 a month. Suddenly I'm $2,000 or more in arrears. And if you add late fees, I might even be $2,500. So I've got to take an entire month's pay or more and pay that to get caught back up. You can see why this leads to evictions and skips. At a certain point in time, a tenant simply gets so upside down that I, I can't get caught back up. Now, we don't want that to happen to anyone, which is one of the reasons we want to use a good process for helping people get approved. And we work with folks all along the way. If they start to have some issues and some challenges, we want to talk to them about ways that we could conceivably help them with that. But what does all that mean when you add it all up? Is, is there a clear winner? Is three to one the right way to do it? Or is two and a half to one the right way to qualify tenants? And again, I would say it depends. In our experience, we have lower delinquencies and fewer evictions and lower occupancy with three to one. Because again, you have fewer tenants to draw from. The trade-off, and this is really what it comes down to, what's the, what's the right trade-off? If I am going to give up more occupancy, then I am going to save in delinquencies I avoid, bad debt I avoid, evictions I avoid, and the time and energy and hassle associated with that, then three to one makes sense. If on the other hand, there are delinquencies, there are evictions, and they have to be dealt with, and I'm able to operate a property highly occupied because I'm using two and a half to one, and that higher level of occupancy not only helps offset the delinquency expense, but it allows me to move rents, then two and a half to one might make sense. And by the way, that could be the exact same property. It could be at two different points in time during the hold of an asset when I'm maybe in the beginning going through the value add work and the heavy rent growth. And then later when I'm in more of a maintenance and operations mode, it could also be based on what's going on in the economy. Are we having a strong, robust, heavy growth cycle? Are we in recession? Are we bottomed out and beginning to recover? Are we at a maturation phase? All of those factors would play. And ultimately, it's a decision you have to make based on the data that you have. What we think is important is that there's thought given to all of these different factors, not just how is it going to impact us, but what's it going to mean for our customers, the tenants? We want our tenants to enjoy their experience living here. Sincerely, 
And we think that's good for business. If someone enjoys having our location as their home, we believe that's going to be good for us, that that's good, that good word is going to be spread and we're going to get more tenants and quality tenants because of that. So if you're managing your own properties, you at least need to take a look at this and have a process for how you do this and give it some thought as to whether or not two and a half or three makes more sense. If you're a passive investor, that's an interesting topic to talk with your sponsor about or to look in the quarterly reporting they provide you or others in terms of why it's done one way versus the other. If you work with us, I can tell you right now, we have a mix. We have properties that are three to one. We have properties that are two and a half to one. And we have properties that have been one flavor, if you will, and are now the other. It really is situational in terms of what makes the most sense for how that particular property is performing today and what we have planned for the next six months, the next 12 months, and so on. I hope you found this week's session valuable. Again, please swing by marapolling.com, register for the 2024 Outlook. It's going to be a great session. And as I said, you'll get a copy of the material and priority access to the recording of the session if you're registered. If you have any questions, shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. And please join me again next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poland. <music>